Hey kids, we're back. Welcome everyone to season five of the Northern Spin podcast. We are one year old. My name is Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest and is my happy clappy co-presenter, Chris Maguire, the banter king of Kent, the chief key chappy from Chorley. Absolutely welcome, Michael. I have to say it's six weeks without seeing you and I've missed every single day. Um, I'm delighted to be back. Heartfelt. I'm the, <laughs> heartfelt. I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast. Uh, really proud, actually, to have... Uh, clocked up our first year it's strange to think that when we had our first ever episode of northern spin um liz truss was the uh, newly crowned prime minister but uh, i genuinely genuinely believe we haven't even scratched the surface for northern spin but we have got a very 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 special guest today and i need you to introduce him yeah a big northern spin welcome today to yoshi herman of the mill yoshi hi Hi, thank you for having me on. Not at all. As well as slotting into the normal format of Northern Spin, Yoshi's also going to be telling us about the investment of £350,000 in a big fundraising. Um, I think they call it a funding round these days in Techland, but we'll defer to Mr Maguire on that one. Uh, Chris, what else are we going to be talking about on the pod today? Well, given the fact that we missed... Uh, we, we, we were um, obviously away in August because it's the, the recess at Parliament, so we decided uh, we were going to go away... Um, we're going to do a recap in terms of the summer from the perspective of the Tories and Labour. I'll take the Tories, even though I don't really want to. You'll do Labour. Then I'll do the Tories our, as well. Yeah, then we're going to look <laughs> into our crystal ball and we're going to see what's on the horizon. Now, obviously, we get these things with boxing matches where you get these big build-ups. There's a big game, a big fight at the weekend with... Um, uh, it was with uh, Chris Eubanks, wasn't it? Chris Eubanks Jr. So if I had to describe Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer's performance this summer in the context of a boxing match... I would describe it like this. Okay. In the blue corner, we've got Rishi Sunak, the king of the Kashmir jumper, and still looking for his first win of any kind. Versus the in the red corner, we've got Keir, the U-turn starmer, a man who won't throw any punches and is so scared of losing the election, he doesn't do anything. Now, am I being fair there, Michael? Uh, yes, but only to, a, only to a very small point. I think um, we, we've used the, the, the Ming vase over the polished floor metaphor quite a lot on this show. I think Labour are being cautious, but I think they've also had quite a lot to say. I, t I went to see Angela Rayner during the Edinburgh Festival, which I'll talk a little bit more about later on. And she really got across the fact that Keir Starmer is a serious person, is a serious politician. And we've got an unserious government at the moment. And I think what Starmer's doing is preparing for government. There's lots of things going on behind the scenes. He's working ferociously hard to uh, to do that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the uh, rest of the podcast. But before we do that deep dive, time for a few thank yous. This is season five of the Northern Spin podcast. We simply couldn't do it without our production company, What Media? who expertly produce this podcast every single week. They're the kings of video content creation, and they turn our weekly ramblings into the hit weekly podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. Absolutely. Thanks. Massive thanks to What Media. Uh, I know they've been counting down the days till they uh, saw me and you again. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors as well. I'm wearing a FI Real Estate Management gilet. So, um, Chris, may I say, it's very Alan Partridge. <laughs> It's uh, well, I take that as a compliment. It's from Alan you. Partridge at Tony Hare's funeral look that you're rocking there, yeah. I think. And you're, you're wearing your John Travolta white t shirt look today. So, uh, no, thank you very much for that. Um, so, FI Real Estate Management is not your traditional property company. Founded in 1982 and managing assets totaling more than £1 billion, FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on going on the journey with their tenants. 
They operate UK-wide, but they're currently building a new £100 million industrial and commercial park at Botany Bay in Chorley in Lancashire, FI Real Estate Management, the property company with personality that you can trust. Chris, you're going to do a deepish dive into the Tories, and I'll do the same for Labour. So go on, fill your boots. Okay, look, it's been a terrible summer for Rishi Sunak personally. His approval ratings have plummeted. Um, it's difficult to talk about Tory highlights because there haven't been any, but let's do a quick pricey. Inflation is 6.8% in July. So is Sunak going to hit the uh, his target of halving inflation by the end of the year? Not sure. Interest rates at 5.25%, 15-year high, set to go even higher. Immigration's a disaster. They had their flagship Bibby Stockholm barge. And then that turned out into a PR car crash when uh, they all had to, uh, you know, get off because of a Legionnaire bacteria outbreak. We've got record numbers of people crossing the channel in in, uh, boats, industrial actions off the scale. Nadine Doris, she's finally resigned, but the election will be during the uh, party conference in October. Yeah, her resignation speech was some zinger, wasn't it? Yeah, I think the thing is... in the mail. People don't... Well, the fact that she actually announced her resignation to the Daily Mail tells you everything that you need to know. Um, a lot of people talk about this reshuffle. I mean, just for the uh, full disclosure, we're recording this on Monday and the Labour Party is set to announce a reshuffle later today. But last week, Rishi Sunak did a low-key reshuffle when he replaced um, Ben Wallace with Grant Shapps as Secretary of State for Defence. The one to keep an eye out on is uh, Claire Cotino, 38-year-old loyalist, appointed state, uh, she's the Minister of State for the Energy and uh, Net Zero. The one that I thought was really interesting is, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, there was a reshuffle at the back office at number 10. Um, Amber de Botton resigned as Sunak's Director of uh, Communication following the appointment of Jamie uh, Najusku Goodwin as number 10's Director of Strategy, previously the Chief Executive of UK Music. A lot of people think this is a move towards the election and creating a new strategy because they're 20 points behind in the polls. What would your thoughts be on that? Um, yeah, I think they're obviously trying to shuffle the deck a little bit and work behind the scenes to improve their game because it has been, as we've discussed on this podcast and many other people have discussed, been absolutely terrible. You know, all the things that you've mentioned so far were Sunak's own measures about what he'd achieved, his five key points, and he seems to have singularly failed on each and every one of them. And then the big issue that's dominated, they've tried to have these these special grid weeks, haven't they, where they focus on a particular issue and they've all blown up in their faces. The latest one, as we're going back to school, is school a lot of schools can't open because of um, because of this concrete issue. And there we have, s- supposedly, the rising star of the Tory party, Gillian Keegan, gone missing. Yeah, she was on the uh, news this morning, but absolutely, yeah. I mean, her, you know, it was, she should have been front and centre of this. And uh, Piers Morgan called it out yesterday, you know, on uh, Laura Coonsberg's show, where is Gillian Keegan? So now what you're hearing is what you've got with Rishi Sunak. He was seen as a safe pair of hands after the absolute nightmare of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. He steadied the ship, but he's just not started a ship. So the ship's just going around in circles at the moment. Uh, and you're even hearing about uh, MPs, you know, filing letters of no confidence in Rishi Sunak to the nineteen twenty two committee. So it feels a bit like rats off a sinking ship. But that's the case for the Conservative Party. Um, what's your view? I want to bring Yoshi in at this point. Come on, Yoshi, you, you edit the mill. It's a it's a Greater Manchester newsletter. You do the other um, deep dive news pieces in in your, the other cities where you operate. What's your take? I, I, does that sum up where the Tories are, do you think? Yeah, I mean, the school thing feels to me like 
something sort of so it's it's almost emblematic isn't it the idea that there'll be schools that are potentially going to be falling on on kids or you know the the actual infrastructure of our schools hospitals police stations falling apart that feels like a metaphor but it almost seems to come down to this lack of investment for for such a long time if you underinvest in capital projects for 10 years you are going to have these enormous problems start to build up so it almost feels like anything they do now or they do next week or they would have done a year ago doesn't wouldn't really make a dent in the kind of big strategic thing here, which is that for however long it is now, since 2010, the country has underinvested in its major infrastructure and now we seem to be paying for that. Yeah, we certainly do, don't we? Um, now, Chris, um, I, I, did, I did a piece for our local paper about the Tories where I basically summed up that what all they've got is culture wars. And they've they've tried to prosecute a number of those issues over the um, o- over the summer period, you know, trying to focus on you know, be it Mick, you know create all these folk devils, be it Mick Lynch or um, refugees, trans people, people that just stop oil protesters. Um, the Daily Mail produced a woke list. You know, you've had Lee Anderson railing against the metropolitan liberal elite and the woke agenda, and it's like, what are you actually about? You're in government, you know. What have you got to actually defend after 13 years in power? I think it's pretty risable, really. Um, and, of course, we've, we've got the continuing issues about, you know, sewage emissions, as Yoshi says, the, um, the crumbling infrastructure of our public services. I think every single one of us, both in this room and in listening to this podcast, will have some kind of horror story about the NHS and waiting times, how people are treated. We had the story about what happened at the Countess of Chester Hospital with uh, with a nurse who was killing people, and yet the lack of accountability in the NHS. The, the, it just feels like the country isn't working anymore, and it needs someone serious in charge. I think he is serious. I just don't think he's... But he hasn't ins- got a grip on power, has he? I just think he's not inspiring. And, and if you're going to win an election, you've got to offer some hope. And But, but the problem isn't Rishi Sunak. The problem is 13 years of conservatism and their obsession with Brexit over the first 10 years took their eye off the ball. And, you know, you know, Yoshi mentioned it about, about the, um, you know, about the schools crumbling, literally crumbling, you know, uh, and, 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 and then you've got industrial action and there's this feeling and, you know, it's a pretty easy job being an opposition party at the moment because, because Britain feels like it's broken. Britain feels like it's falling apart, you know, fairly or unfairly. And, And I don't see anybody saying anything that, you know, makes me excited. You know, my kids don't talk about politics, not in a not in a good way, anyway. Um, but um, I think I think Labour are very good at saying how bad the Conservatives are because the Conservatives are very bad. The problem Labour have got, they're not very good at saying what Labour stand for. I think that's. I think we've 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 gone over this a few times on the podcast before. I think Labour have got a fairly ambitious set of ideas about how they want the country to function better and be run better. But what they haven't done is, is as yet cut through to the public and inspired that emotional response that you get with politicians like Blair in 97, like Barack Obama, with that, that whole agenda for hope and yes, we can and all of that. But I don't think the country's necessarily ready for it. I think it wants stable government. And Keir Starmer, the thing I took from it, so I saw Angela Rayner at the Edinburgh Festival being interviewed by the comedian Matt Ford. And obviously the Daily Mail pivoted on the fact that... Um, Angela likes a, likes a drink and a vape and she goes on holiday with the girls and dances till dawn. Big revelation, big shock. You know, woman in 30s or 40s likes, likes dancing all night. Um, 
But what I took from it, actually, was that she is as grown and matured as a politician. She's hugely ambitious for the country, and she wants to make great change and understand how change happens. So um, she was explaining how they're going to overturn employment legislation to get rid of zero-hours contracts, make employment more secure in tenure. But typically, that was then interpreted as a massive U-turn by the FT in in a gotcha story. But, you know, it's one thing to stand up and say that you're against something and this is what you want. It's another entirely to design a very complex legislative timetable over a period of months, which it seems like that's what Labour's trying to do. The Tories, on the other hand, have got no agenda and it's been down to Labour to point this out. Even relatively mundane things like audit reform, which I'm not going to bore our listeners with, being quietly shuffled off by Kemi Badenoch. And it's down to Labour to say, oi, we were prepared to support this with some constructive amendments. I also think Labour have been fairly steady in campaigning in Scotland, which is going to be absolutely crucial to them achieving any kind of election win. And and it's just been down to them to keep pointing out that by their own criteria, the Tories are failing on every single front. And they've been really, really appalling at news management. The reason I mention all of that is because we saw the reaction when ill-thought-through slogans were implemented as policies by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng this time last year. And that's ultimately what Labour want to avoid. They want to be ready and prepared and hit the ground running. I'll give some feedback in terms of Labour, but and then I'd like to get you know Yoshi's view in terms of the mill and how much of your stuff and how much of your deep-dive investigations are geared around politics and the reaction that you get as well but you know i look at labor and as i say i'm not here well i suppose i am here to try and defend the stories it's impossible to do so keir starmer has done nothing in my view no significant policy announcement we speak about it you've spoken about the ming vase analogy already big front page story in today's daily mail monday to say keir starmer will not increase income tax for working people wow we've got we are paying a record level of tax and keir starmer's headline is we're not going to increase income tax Andy Burnham's described Labour's two-child policy as immoral. His words, not mine. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeve has ruled out any version of a wealth tax. Uh, uh, hold on, Chris. It's not Labour's two-child policy. It's the Tories' two-child policy. But Labour won't reverse no, it. No, we, we, no, if you remember, we had Andy in this studio and we talked about this when we had him as a guest on the podcast and we discussed why couldn't Labour just say we, wouldn't, we would never have introduced this. It's not about that they, they immorally want to punish families who have more than two children. It's that they haven't got the capacity... Or, or are prepared to commit to reversing these Tory policies. Angela Rayner has said it's immoral. I think if you push Keir Starmer, he'd say we'd never introduce something like this. I think it's unfair to say it's a Labour policy to, 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 that's immoral. Um, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves ruled out any version of a wealth tax on the riches in society. Should Labour win the next general election? Labour find it very easy to criticise the Tories over the dodgy concrete, quite rightly, but won't commit to rebuilding the condemned schools if they get power, because they have to be seen as being economically and fiscally responsible. The rumours of a reshuffle today, and speculation is that Lisa Andy and Jim McMahon could be demoted. Question marks over what role Angela Rayner's going to have going forward. Um, if I was giving the Tories a rating for their summer, I'd give them a D-, minus, but I'd only give Labour a C+. Plus. Um, what, what, what do you think in terms of... Uh, Yoshi, when you do your stories with a mill and you're choosing what stories to go on, how big is politics in the mill for those people who maybe don't subscribe to to the mill yeah it's interesting actually because i think a lot of people when they think of local news they think of local politics you know council stuff etc we actually try to be a bit more balanced because we feel like 
if you just give people council stories every day, planning this and council that and whatever, that actually that isn't the kind of mix that people want. So what we try to do is like every few weeks we'll we'll come at a politics issue, but hopefully from an angle that people haven't really thought about before. Our whole model in the middle is to do like long reads and in-depth stories. So we won't do the kind of incremental day-to-day stuff. We'll try to do the like we've spoken to eight or nine different people and 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 here's what's really going on. That's kind of our uh, that's our approach to politics. I think people want politics in their in their life, but I don't think they want to be hit over the head with politics every single day. And that kind of informs our um, editorial approach. Yeah, and and when you get your like you look at your traffic, do you find a political story would maybe get more traction than a business story? Actually, no. So if you look at the mail, A, we don't look at traffic much. We, we tend to look at how many new paid subscribers have we got because we're all about paid subscribers. If you look at the stories with the most paid subscribers, they're often not about politics, actually. So a big one earlier this year that got us loads of new subscribers when we reported on um, a hospitality story about you know a hospitality business not paying its staff properly and that kind of thing. Um, when we get when we get a story that sort of takes someone behind the curtains that shows people what's really going on behind the scenes in a story in Manchester, that is tends to be what drives um, paid subscribers rather than a politics. And we've had some. I wrote a, I wrote a long read about Sir Richard Lees that, that, that did well, and we've done some um, stuff on the sort of internal dynamics within Manchester City Council that's done well. We did a lot on Oldham actually. It's interesting what you say about Jim McMahon. I'm not sure Jim McMahon should be anywhere near a front bench of government, given the way he dealt with these kind of like rumours and allegations about um, paedophile rings and all that kind of thing in Oldham, um, which had no basis in fact, but which were really badly handled by the council and, and by McMahon. So um, wouldn't be... When, when he was leader of Oldham Council. When he was leader of Oldham Council, he's obviously been the MP since. I think he's been um, pretty weak and, and incoherent on, on that issue. So I, I wouldn't particularly want him in the cabinet. Um, but yeah, we, they, we, we've done a lot of stuff on Oldham politics because it's had all these strange sort of uh, allegations and yeah. uh, dynamics. And Stockport politics as well, of course. We've done quite a bit on Stockport because Stockport's been interesting, obviously. It's kind of a, a bit of a swing area now um, at general elections, at council elections. So we, we, we dip into politics, but we try not to, to give people politics every single day. And that's what we try and do in terms of Northern Spin as well. Yes, it's politically, it's a political podcast, but we do try and shine a light on it and actually make it understandable. Um, because it's our first show back after, uh, after the summer away, what, what, what we're going to do now, and we're just going to pick on certain stories that we think are going to be interesting. So if you want to mark your card in terms of politically what's going to happen, um, when we look on the horizon, what things do we think could move the dial slightly? I mean, I think Rishi Sunak, I mean, every time there was a negative headline about Boris Johnson, he'd go to the Ukraine, wouldn't he? So Rishi Sunak's going to be going to the G20 in India. Much is being made of his heritage. He's expecting to be mobbed and treated as a hero there as well. Um, bigger question is, can he come back with a trade deal? I mean, what would your advice be to, uh, um, to Rishi Sunak, Michael, if you, were, if you found yourself encamped in his number 10? And given the fact they are going through advisors like confetti, you know, it can't be long before you get the call. What, on the trade deal to it, with a trade deal with India? Well, or? I mean, I think, I think Rishi's trying to present himself as a serious politician. He's trying to actually re- recognise domestically he's struggling. And I think he's going to try and make a lot of capital out of it. Look like G20. a statesman on the world stage, you mean? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that always, that always works for politicians, but only to a certain extent. I think what's going to happen is he's going to stand up in, at the press conference announcing some sort of trade deal in India, probably alongside, I don't know, Prime Minister Modi or something like that. And the first question is going to be some gaffe that, Grant Shapps has committed on the Today programme that morning. Um, unfortunately, he's absolutely a prisoner of the domestic agenda and that, that's going to follow him all around the world. I just think he's got that kind of slow smell of kind of a rotting government about him, unfortunately. 
you do get the impression it's death by a thousand cuts, you know, and then yeah. whatever he says, you know, whatever he says is going to be superseded by something that's happening yeah. domestically. Um, this time last year, you you were absolutely cock a hoop because you went to the Labour conference in Liverpool. They're Not back quite there. this time last year. This no, day, it was October, yeah, it was yeah. October. Um, and uh, they're back in Liverpool this year. I mean, the Manchester is going to host the Conservative Party conference October the 1st to the 4th. Um, this will be Sunak's first, possibly only, party conference as leader. I actually think it's quite interesting that Grant Saps has been, you know, unveiled as a defence secretary, bearing in mind he was the one who killed off the last prime minister at the last, um, you know, election when he pulled out his list of people who were going to vote for him and against. Um, how important do you think these two party conferences are going to be to shaping the Labour and the Conservative agenda moving forward? It, well, it depends if... Uh... If Rishi Sunak's team have got the Velcro out for the sign behind him yeah. and uh, make sure he's got a glass of water on hand if he has a coughing fit. Remember Theresa May doing yeah. that at Tory conference in Manchester? Um, Theresa May, how many prime ministers ago was she? Well, she just brought out a book, of course. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Um, yeah, the Tories in Manchester. I used to be quite excited about that. I used to think, hey, we've got the party of government. Or, yeah, they were the party of government. Coming to the city, having all these discussions about you know, the marketplace of ideas. The city comes alive with, you know, different events going on around town. I don't think that's the case anymore, is it? It's just like this hermetically sealed... What do you think, Yoshi? Tories coming to Manchester. Does it, is it good for the city? Yeah, I'm sure it's good on sort of an economic level, but there doesn't seem to be that much sort of connection, does there, between the world of people who work in the Tory party, Tory advisors, Tory journalists, and Manchester. There's not much sort of cultural crossover there. And therefore, I think you're right, it sort of does happen in a bit of a vacuum here. Yeah, um, probably the, I mean, it's the same for any other conference, whether it's the, the international veterinarians or, uh, or whoever coming to town. Um, they, they do tend to just operate. I'm, I'm sure people from Manchester Central or GMEX, as it's uh, more commonly known, will say that the yes, it has a great economic impact in the city for the amount of money that's spent. Same in Liverpool with Labour going there. Obviously, Liverpool's a bit more of a Labour city that will welcome... Welcome them in. Yeah, that's the, the point, though, isn't it? That's the point, is that, you know, Liverpool and Labour are inextricably linked, whereas Manchester and the Conservatives aren't. Um, you know, there was this talk a few years ago, the Northern Powerhouse. It sort of made sense, didn't it, to have it in the North. You know, when, uh, you know, when Boris famously won, you know, the general election in 2019, the following day, he's at the Science Museum, you know, talking about the Northern Powerhouse and this, that and the other. Well, that, that train, pardon the pun, has left the station. Uh, actually, it probably hasn't left the station because because it's been delayed. Um, and and I think it'll be fascinating to see what happens. Now, Nadine Doris, I mean, I want to talk about two by-elections that are going to come up. Nadine Doris, Mid-Bedfordshire, she's timed this perfectly for the launch of her next book and also the fact that she knows that the Mid-Bedfordshire by-election is going to take place in and around the time of the party conference. That's going to be huge um, because if they lose that with a 24,000-seat majority, where do the Conservatives go after that? I don't, I don't know. I don't think they will lose it. I think they'll hold it. Didn't you? And yeah. from a Labour's perspective, the big, the big one's going to be the other by-election in uh, Rutherglen and Hamilton West in Scotland, previously held by Margaret Ferry. Of course, she famously was the MP who broke the COVID rules. Isn't it amazing that she broke the COVID rules? I think it was, what, two, three years ago, and with now finally having a, a by-election. If Labour are serious about not only winning the next general election, but getting a sizable majority they have got to take serious seats in Labour. Yeah. What would be a bad result for Labour? No, Labour are going to win that seat, hands down. I'll have you a small wager on that one. Um, what, what do you think in terms of, um, Yoshi, in terms of the next general election and what type of general election we're going to have? And the reason I ask that question is, I think this is going to be gloves off. I think this is going to be down and dirty. 
I think it's going to be horrible. I think it's going to be super negative. I think it's going to be fought on social media. I think it's going to be it's going to be insults. You know, extraordinary. You're going to see that. I mean, don't get me when you've got a guy like Anderson mm. as the chairman of the party, deputy chairman of the party, it can only go one way. Are you worried about where it's going? Well, one of the things we're looking at locally is what kind of campaigning the party's doing. So, who is funding local Facebook pages? Uh, what kind of leaflets are going out? We're doing a bit of a monitoring project on that. We're working with Open Democracy, who are a, a sort of investigative website. Interesting. Um, and we're going to do a, a bit of reporting with them on on that. We're going to ask our readers to send in the sort of leaflets that they're getting through the door so we could look at who's funding. Is it national funding? Is it local funding? What kind of messages they are, et cetera, et cetera. And fake newspapers. And fake newspapers. That's actually one of the big things that comes through people's yeah. letterboxes now. I think in Greater Manchester, we've got some interesting constituencies in Barry and Bolton and Hayward and Middleton, et cetera. So we will be a bit of an epicenter of, yeah. of, of this fight. I think on the tone of it, currently the question that's sort of up for debate when, when people are deciding who to vote for is the state of the country, Right not just the cost of living, but also the state of our hospitals, now the state of our schools, the state of our um, infrastructure, really. That seems to be the question. And therefore, that is going to be quite a negative campaign, isn't it? I think what will be interesting at the Labour conference is, do they manage to articulate a more positive and more coherent vision? Because it will only become an election about a sort of a new Britain, about a, a remaking the country, if Labour can actually articulate a set of ideas that people find compelling, that people find interesting. And so far, that, that they've chosen not to do that. They've chosen to make it a referendum on the state of the country. The state of the country is very poor. And, and, and that's, that's been, a, I think, a very clever strategy. It'd be interesting to see. I, I, John McTernan had a column in the FT this weekend where I think he said that Labour have been told that of their slots in their speech, I think four out of five need to be about their vision rather than about the Tories or something. Yeah. And I think that it'd be interesting to see do they actually have it in them, intellectually speaking, to come up with a vision that is both coherent but also makes emotional sense to people? I, I think you're right. I, th I like that analogy, the, the referendum on, on the state of the country uh, that I think Labour will win. I think the next phase will be, well, this is a two-term, three-term project. That's when you need the vision. Right, we've gone under the hood of the country. We know what's required. We know how we need to reform the tax base. It's one thing saying, you know, marginal tax rates of 40%, just like little nitpicky things like the child benefit rules, capital gains tax. That's all just tinkering around the edges. What about actually looking at really seriously at taxing wealth? and also how you tax corporations who are making excess profits. So it needs a bit of an overhaul. But again, that takes time. That's not something that you can just stand up in a slogan like Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng did, but it's something that is Labour's agenda for like, right, now, now we're going for it. Now we're going for hope. Now we're going for we can see what needs to be done. Give us the time. We're competent. We're trustworthy. We're honest. We're not this kind of rolling circus that the Tories have become. We're actually serious people. And I think... I think that plays quite well to Keir Starmer's persona, but um, it, it's not the you have to sometimes step out of the day to day grind. And I think that what you've contributed to this discussion today is given us the kind of the insight to try and do a little bit of that. What you what say you, Chris Maguire? Well, I was really interested. Like it's interesting in the sense that I don't think we've stuck to the script at all today because that's the great thing about having a guest in is that what you're talking about is doing these partnerships with like open data mm -hmm. and you're seeing a lot now of national publications like the garden and like, like the sort of gardener are, 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 are working with investigation bureaus, mm -hmm. you know, and they're saying to themselves actually, and we're going to talk about this in part three as well. We're actually saying we can't do this on our own because we're the best will in the world. The mill isn't resourced to the level of the FT and you know that. Yeah. 
So what you have to do is you have to come at it from a different level. And I think what you have in politics is, is they, they, they impose their view on us and expect people to believe it. And we have to challenge that. And we have to say to people, actually, you know, if a conservative is going to pop through a, uh, a false newspaper and they're going to use the same masthead as the, news, as the newspaper in the area and make it look like a false front page, that is misleading. And it has to be called out of whichever political party as well. Um, I think we've, we've got to stop being treated like mugs. Mm. And that's what I find really depressing. And I think it's, so inc it's incumbent on, on you, on me, on Michael, um, to put our political hue to one side as well and actually say, you know what, okay, what do you stand for? Okay, what do you stand for? Um, I mean, Michael, you've been around for a few years, as have I. 57, Absolutely. to be exact. Do you, well, happy birthday, because you had your birthday, I think, during the, uh, the recess. Um, do you think this is going to be a dirty election? Yeah, it's going to be horrible. And I think one of the targets of, of it all is going to be Angela Rayner, um, who, again, like I said, I saw her at the Edinburgh Fringe doing an interview with Matt Ford. And the, the mail did a big gotcha on her kind of holiday habits and the fact that she vapes and all the rest of it. And throws great parties at a house in Ashton, which friends of mine have been to and confirm they are indeed great parties. Um, but it triggered over 4,000 people to add comments on that. So they know that that's the kind of red meat. Bash Angela Rayner, do horrible stories about her, comment on her appearance, her shoes, her, her Apple AirPods, stuff like that. Some of the, but a lot, of, I mean, some of the comments were also saying, well, good for her and not joining the pylon. But I think we're going to get a lot more of that, a lot more personal attacks. I think Keir Starmer's record as the director of public prosecutions is going to come in for some, dare I say, unfair scrutiny, because I think he was, you know, he tried to do, always do the right thing. I think he was a good director of public It's interesting, actually, you asked me about traffic earlier and which stories get the most traffic. One story that does consistently get read, even though it's three years old, is an interview I did with Nazir Afzal, who was the chief prosecutor in the Northwest yeah. uh, during the Rochdale grooming yeah. scandal. And there is a whole section of that piece that's really off you paragraphs, really, about Keir Starmer. Right. Starmer was his boss. And he really says in that, Starmer really backed him to right. basically reverse the decision that had previously been made and go ahead with prosecuting, you know, a set of the, the, the grooming gangs. It was the first big Rochdale grooming trial. And I always see people on Twitter. We often get tweets, you know, someone will say something about Keir Starmer's, you know, time at the, at the Crown Prosecution Service. And then someone else will reply, screenshotting that piece and say, no, well, actually, he did the right thing. Really? But I saw over the weekend they were saying, someone, I think it was a Sunday Times piece, as you said, Tories are going to be going through Starmer's past and, uh, you know, at the CPS and, and working out, you know, what, what, what are good attack lines relating to his, his time as a prosecutor. So that will get quite ugly. My concern with an ugly election is that on a local level, we don't have that much journalism anymore to check what's really going on. Most that, so I, I looked the other, the other week, 450 journalists are based in the lobby, right? So 450 of the best paid most experienced journalists in the country are based in one building, effectively, or two buildings in Westminster. Most of politics doesn't happen in that building, though. Most of politics happens on a local level. Certainly most of campaigning in a general election happens at a very, very local level. Very sort of ugly fights to try and win certain constituencies that are marginal. And we don't have that many journalists in those places because local journalism has been cut to the bone, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. So there's just not that much monitoring of what the parties are doing. Are they breaking election spending rules? Are they, um, are they, are they whipping up sort of racist campaigns? Are they targeting people on, with unfair allegations, et cetera, et cetera? I think that would be a big area to, um, to keep an eye on.
I'll tell you what I'll do for you, Yoshi, as well. Um, over the next few weeks, I'll gather up my Lib Dem leaflets with their dodgy bar charts that come through my door in the Hazel Grove constituency, which is one of their key target seats. Send them my way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, and on that note, let's go to a quick break. So one of the businesses I'm involved in is Proactive Progress. Proactive Progress is a monthly meeting of ambitious Northwest businesses who grow through collaboration. Every month, I hit my black book. We bring in a big name speaker and share experiences, challenges, and opportunities. If you're interested in joining Proactive Progress, contact me. Lots of methods to do that, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, or my business partner, Paul Woods. If you want to grow your business, do it through Proactive Progress. Welcome back to part two of episode one of season five of Northern Spin. I should just say, actually, our uh, last podcast, our interview with Andy Burnham, was our best listened to and downloaded podcast ever in the history of the Northern Spin. But I'm sure this one's going to we'll be close it. it. We'll beat it. Absolutely. Um, now, before we go to our regular sections, which is anything to see here and on manoeuvres, I just wanted to have a quick update, really, on politics across the North. And the one that caught my eye was Andy Burnham. Um, you know, obviously we interviewed in the last podcast. In terms of what's happened, the petition against ticket office closures, rail ticket office closures, I think has approached 100,000. I think it's about 88,000. I know last week Tracy Braben, the West Yorkshire mayor, she uh, she dived into it as well. Fascinated to get your view, Michael, on what you think is going to happen there. Um, September, the B network, the buses, are going to be introduced across uh, Manchester. Andy Burnham made a big play about that. That's going to be huge. And, I mean, socially, I mean, Andy Burnham appeared at the... Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He was asked about his relationship with Keir Starmer and his own political ambitions, something we touched upon as well. He also appeared on stage at Kendall Calling to introduce Stockport's finest, Blossoms, and uh, hung out with Noel Gallagher at the recent concert at Withenshaw Park. Um, do you get the impression, Michael, this is going to be a crucial few months for Andy Burnham? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest, Chris. I think it's steady as you go. Uh, I think a lot of the attention does frustrate him, as he spoke about when he did our podcast, that it then becomes about him and the psychodrama of Labour. I think he's got a great opportunity at Labour conference to talk about what he's achieved in Greater Manchester and be the, the spokesman spokesperson for the different metro mayors and what they've achieved in government, even speaking up for you know more devolution and, and to hold on to what devolution powers have been granted to the metro mayors like him by the Tories and, and to build on that agenda and to say, this is us in power, look at what we can achieve and to be the lever of power that uh, a first-term government has, can use because they've got the, the mature infrastructure here in Greater Manchester to achieve a lot of that. I think, you know, we talk a lot about the visibility of politics and change. I think people feel that lots of stuff is being done to them that they never had a say on. You know, it's often, it's been well commented that that was one of the reasons for the Brexit vote. Is like, it's our one opportunity when they ask us to say, no, we don't like something that we never felt we had a say on. I think the buses is a good one because it's really visible. And I think within, you know, within a year or so, the buses are all going to be one colour and you can visibly point and say, all right, there are more of them, they're better, they're more comfortable and they're better used. I think what the big challenge is, it is... Is, is exactly that. Will people use them? Because eventually it's got to be funded somehow and there, there's a massive shortfall between how much it's going to cost to actually operate the B network and how much you know, the cheaper bus fares is yielding in revenue. You know, I, well, the that, buses that go past my house are empty. 
but they need loads more people to take the buses. So I actually agree with you, it's a crucial period, because this is probably the first time in Andy Burnham's time as mayor where he has a massive execution challenge. Normally, he is talking about things that he does not have power over, which is relatively straightforward. But this is the thing that he campaigned to do. He went through all these legal challenges to, to put buses under local control. They're now going to be franchised, and we are now going to see whether he and his team have the chops to make it work. They need way more people to use the buses in order to make this work. They are going to have a problem for the first couple of years that, yes, visually they will look different, but they will not. The, the problems that we have with our buses at the moment are not going to go away just because they're, they're still going to be run by very similar companies overseen by the Combined Authority or Transport for Greater Manchester. People will expect rapid change, and I think they'll get quite gradual change. I think they'll still have a lot of the reliability issues, still have a lot of the issues of overcrowding on certain routes. I think that this is a massive year ahead for Burnham. Are he and his team good at public messaging? Yes, we know that. Establish themselves within the Labour Party? Yeah, we know that. Are they good at running things when they are given the power to do so, solving problems, being honest when things don't go right, actually having the capacity within the combined authority to run a transport network? Totally unclear at this point whether that is something that they're good at. I'm, I'm almost, listen, I'm going to sound like the Yoshi fan club here because you're spot on. Because what Labour have been very good at is criticising, um, but they've not got a lot of evidence to point to to say, well, this is what we did and it works. And Andy Burnham spoken about the ticket office closures in train stations, gathered 100,000 people or 88,000 people to sign against it. However, if this buses, if it works, if it works, you can guarantee that Keir Starmer and Labour will say, well, Labour... You know, uh, a sort of Labour mayor has delivered this for the people of Greater Manchester and it has worked. The optics going to be really important because it'd be very easy to get a picture of an empty bus and say Andy Burnham's you know, bus initiative isn't working because look, the buses are half empty. It's not going to be an overnight thing. But fundamentally, what Andy Burnham is saying is spot on. We need to bring this under the control of, of the region. And it's almost going to be like a mandate for devolution, isn't it? If this is a success, you could see more power trickling down from Westminster to regions like the Northwest and, and Manchester in particular. But I think it's a massive, a massive six months for Andy Burnham. Yeah, it's an implementation challenge. And generally what Andy Burnham's been really good at is talking about things, positioning, getting people riled up about stuff, uh, building a sort of emotional support for different issues. This is an implementation challenge. I'd like to see how well that goes. This is not going to be fundable in the medium term to long term unless they can turn patronage up, right? Bus patronage is not particularly in a good place at the moment. It needs to be up. This is definitely the right thing for Greater Manchester. I mean, having a locally run system, having it under the control of the transport for Greater Manchester, we need way better transport if Greater Manchester is going to become more prosperous, going to give more opportunities to people on the, on the edges of, the, of Greater Manchester. But they have to execute their plans now, and that's where I think it will be really, really interesting to see. Michael, is a fully paid up member and the honorary secretary of the Andy Burnham fan club. Um, so, I mean... No, I'm an independent journalist, Chris. That's a vicious slur. Okay. But the thing is, we both like Andy Burnham. People said to me after the podcast that we did, they said, what's he like? And I said, he comes across really, really well. Even off air, he asks questions about you, you know, that, that he has an interest in people. He's a real people person. Andy Burnham knows he can't, he can't change the trains because that's beyond his control he's yeah, trying Chris, his best Chris that's, that's, that's the point that we, we that we're that 
that we yeah. were making both on the podcast that we did with him and also that, that Yoshi's articulated just now. I think that's one of the dangers that our politics is always down to how people come across in interviews and out what they're like as people. But this is actually about the implementation of policy. And it, if you like, it's a contrast, isn't it? It's, it's where the Tories ultimately have failed. It doesn't matter whether Rishi Sunak looks good in a cashmere jumper or, or, or his hoodie and his burger that he's got all lined out for an Instagram post as he's delivering his budget like he did, or, or, or Boris Johnson's kind of bumbling around with his messy hair and all the rest of it, you know. It's actually about changing people's lives as a result of the decisions that you make and the levers that you pull for civil servants and, and, and public services to run better. And I think what we're seeing in the next year is going to be the implementation of the B network in Greater Manchester and how that works effectively. The same thing, by the way, will happen with, you know, a new, a new skill system. And you think back to a lot of the, the issues around Manchester health devolution, sorry, Greater Manchester health devolution, which happened when, you know, way before he was even elected. And stuff like, you know, eradicating street homelessness. You know, I, I, I still stepped over two or three people between here and Piccadilly Station this morning who have been sleeping in doorways. It's not been completely eradicated and it's a very... But he has got at least attempted to get to grips with an issue and and... and and try to make some of the different levers that he pulls work more effectively. Listen, really good conversation. Um, really good. It's just worth making a point, uh, Yoshi, as well, that um, mm. Michael and I are, are passionate about making sure that we have a really representative discussion as well. And it would be wrong to give all the credit to the mill success to you. Y your colleague was going to join us, wasn't she, Molly Simpson? But you decided that she's the reason the, the mill's successful <laughs> And that the mill can't function without her. Couldn't spare her. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't spare, spare her on a Monday morning. Uh, yeah. There's Molly, there's Sophie Atkinson, our Sophie, uh, senior editor, who's been yeah. a massive part of our success. Jack Delante has been a massive part of success. There's a, there's a real little team um, behind the mill, and it's most certainly not just me. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, this next part is called Anything to See Here. So we look at a couple of stories, and then we ask a question, Anything to See Here. I didn't think the Northern Spin podcast would be talking about the uh, RSPB. But they had to apologise after the conservation charity called Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and several of his ministers liars. In a social media post last week, the charity accused Sunak, levelling up Secretary Michael Gove and Environment Secretary Therese Kofi, of saying that they would not weaken environmental protections. Um, it went on to say, and I quote, and yet that's just what you were doing. You lie and you lie and you lie again. Chief Executive Becky Spate said the charity had been frustrated with plans to scrap water protection restrictions. I mean, Michael, anything to see here? I think it is. It's the, um, it's the frustration of people who see real life as it is rather than as the way politicians like it to be seen, reacting in the way that human beings do with absolute frustration and anger. And it's true, they do, they lie and they lie. That's the problem. They expect the courtesy afforded to serious people and yet they don't behave like serious people because they can contradict themselves. Uh, by the way, the RSPB is located, their headquarters is in Sandy Beds, which is in Nadine Doris's constituency. That's sort of insight we provide on this programme, Yoshi. Um, I want to come to you on this second NHC here story, because I've wrapped up two education stories together. The first relates to the GCSE results a couple of weeks ago and the widening north-south divide. So 28.4% of GCSE entries in London were awarded a grade seven or above this year. So you go from one to nine, nine yeah. being the A star star uh, or whatever the equivalent is. Um, that compares with 17.6% of entries in the Northeast. So there's a gap of nearly 11% of people getting the top 
grade seven and above. Okay, so last year, the grade was 10.2 percentage points. So that suggests that the gap is widening. Um, Ex-school czar Sir Kevin Collins has blamed the Tories for the North-South exam divide for failure to back his £15 billion post-COVID catch-up plan. Now, as mentioned at the top of the show, the second education story relates to rack concrete crisis, which has forced the government to close, I think it's running into hundreds of schools now, over safety fears. I mean, this is big for the North, isn't it? Anything to see here? And Michael, if you want to kick off and then we'll come to Yoshi. Um, I don't know if I've got any particular insights to give on it, Chris. I think it's a hot moving story. Um, and one thing I did notice on the education agenda as well over the A-level results was the Tories wading in once again on attacking universities. Um, again, full disclosure, I did work in a, uh, a public affairs role for a local university in, until two years ago. And, you know, and I think we're going to get used to that. They're just going to be yet another, um, an- another uh, political football in the culture wars. Yeah, I mean, my take on 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 the on the schools gap thing, the, the gap between London and, and the rest, is that that is the big education story. Because if you look at one of the one of the positive things of the of the, of the Tory years, let's say, is that England's standing in international education league tables has been rising. So reading, writing, that kind of thing, we're actually doing really well on those things. And the debate is, or the question is. Is that because the Conservatives have made good reforms, you know, Michael Gove's reforms, etc.? Or is that because New Labour's massive increase in education spending is now actually paying off? I personally don't know the answer, but I do a bit of work every week at a school. It's called Sackville. It's in, in Sussex, where I, I help out as their sort of university helper, really. And I do that a few hours a week, do it over Zoom. They are in a building that was built in the 1960s, and it was supposed to be replaced uh, about 15 years ago. But then the Conservatives came in, they, they were cutting lots of money after the financial crash, and they cancelled that school renovation. So all of the lessons still take place in very old school buildings, like it really is ste- like stepping back in time. So all this stuff about rack just made me think of that building that I go into occasionally and meet them. It really feels like the walls are super thin, it feels like the building should have been replaced 20 years ago. And I don't think it's great that so many of our kids are taught in those kind of buildings, that's the first thing. On the gap between the North and the South, that's a huge, huge deal. I mean, I think that a lot of the progress that English education has made, I think Welsh and Scottish hasn't been quite as good, has been around this London educational miracle, right? That New Labour made a huge push to improve London schools. London schools used to underperform the national average. Now they massively overperform the national average. We did a big data piece about two months ago looking at Greater Manchester schools. How do results compare to London? Lots of boroughs in Greater Manchester used to beat London boroughs that they are now being beaten by. So this is a big deal. Like this is like if if one of the biggest things we want in society is for kids to be educated better, for people from uh, poorer backgrounds to have a better chance in life. That only happens with good schools. And I think it's a concern that it doesn't look like the North schools have improved anywhere near as much as London's one. No, I think the other thing that's linked to uh, educational performance isn't just on the isn't just on schools. It's actually on the preparedness of children, and and if you're a child growing up in poverty, the chances of your your preschool education, whether you go to whether you turn up to school school ready at the age of four, you are you are already behind. If you come from, if you're undernourished, if you're not having, if you're not being fed, if you're from a, mm. a poor background, if your parents haven't been educated to a high level, and yet I think the, the the unsaid thing about the London miracle is the massive population change in London and how London has has become a much more professionalised city. 
Um, I, I don't know. I think there's a, there's a much deeper data dive to look at some of the interpretations of those stats. But I think it's absolutely to, uh, linked to economic attainment as well as uh, economic, the economic circumstances of somebody's life. We're going to talk about um, on manoeuvres next. This is the bit where we identify people, uh, in this case projects actually, that we think people are uh, on manoeuvres. And I'm going to start off with a name. A lot of people will be playing uh, Northern Spin Bingo, saying, when are we going to mention Ben Blocker-Houchin? There it is. He's been very quiet this summer, uh, Ben Blocker-Houchin. Um, so I'm going to kick off with the north of time there, Jamie Driscoll. Now, we've spoken about him before on this pod. He was prevented from standing for the North East mayoral election after sharing a stage with filmmaker Ken Loach, made a lot of time and made a lot of news at the time. As a result, he launched a GoFund campaign to raise 150 grand to be able to contest the mayoral election. He said that um, if we don't raise at least 25,000 pounds, I won't stand. He obviously knew he was going to get 25 grand, otherwise he wouldn't have said it. I'm sure. Um, so they're now at 134,000 pounds towards their target of 150 grand. He's quit the Labour Party. He's going to stand as an independent. He's made a lot of noise over the summer. Likely to be a very tasty battle with Labour's candidate, um, Kim McGuinness. Uh, she's, she's been confirmed as a Labour candidate as well. I think this is a question of get your popcorn ready. I think um, Jamie Driscoll is on manoeuvres. He has to be on manoeuvres. And I think this is a real headache for Keir Starmer moving forward. What do you think, Michael? Well, I think, I think you've skewed the definition of on manoeuvres. I think... Um, I, I normally do, Michael. You know that. <laughs> is it an interesting story? Is there anything to see here? Um, I mean, quite clearly, he's he, he's manoeuvring to be the the northeast mayor, but it's not strictly what that means. But yeah, it's interesting. I I don't think he'll win. Um, I think it could harm Labour's. It could harm Kim McGuinness's authority that she doesn't have as big a um, vote as say Burnham or Tracy Brabin or Steve Rotherham. It could undermine her credibility that she doesn't have a, a bigger mandate from the public of the North East. I think she'll be okay. I think the Labour machine will be fairly formidable. Uh, I don't think he'll win, but no, getting £134,000 towards his 150 grand target is, uh, is, no, is no small achievement. Do you, uh, Yoshi, obviously the mill is very great and Manchester-focused. Do you look beyond the boundaries and do you look at what's happening, say, in the North East with Jamie Driscoll and think to yourself... That is fascinating. Yeah, I think we look at those stories because they tell us something about things that are happening in our own areas. So we've got a newsletter in Liverpool called The Post that people should check out if they live there. And Good plug there. Uh, thank you, yeah, thank well, you. We thank should you do more of this ourselves. Very organic. And what you have in Liverpool is, again, you have National Labour Party sticking its neck into local selections even at council level, but also MP level, to try and make sure that the Labour Party soon starts to reflect better what the, what the leadership looks like. So there's a lot of kind of fights between local left-wing Labour people and national, you know, more centrist Labour people. And I think that we have mentioned the Driscoll thing in the context of what's happening in some of these Liverpool ones, because there have been some pretty vicious fights going on in sort of local Labour uh, constituencies. Yeah, good point. And I read a piece at the weekend to say that Keir Starmer's, you know, looking to uh, to get rid of about twelve troublesome MPs who he thinks he could be clashing with um, in the next uh, in the next parliamentary uh, uh, phase should they win the next general election. So the second uh, one I want to give you for on manoeuvres, and once again, Michael will say this isn't really on manoeuvres, but I just think it's fascinating what's happened uh, over the summer. Okay, my mate Ulez, you know, the ultra low um, emission zone as well. So obviously there was a big thing made about the fact that. 
that Labour didn't win Uxbridge and the thinking was that it was because of Sadiq Khan, the London Mayor's expansion of the ULES policy. Obviously, it's now expanded across the whole of Greater London. If you're driving an old, dirty, you know, pollution-emitting vehicle, you're going to be hit with a £12.50 charge. Tory MP Paul Scully announced that the uh, he claimed that the ULES cameras are designed to trap cancer patients and visitors to the Royal Marsden Hospital. The Conservative Party candidate, Susan Hall, is trying to make similar noises as well. The Conservative parties are trying to really humanise ULES and say, actually, this is going to penalise people who are struggling with the cost of living, etc., etc. And I think this has got real implications for the North as well because of uh, Andy Burnham's clean air zone as well. People are looking at ULES and they're saying, actually, this is Labour penalising the motorist. And net zero has been, that can's been kicked down the road. I mean, what do you think about that? You're asking me? Well, I'll ask you both, actually, because you're both dressed in white T-shirts. Well, here's my hope. Here's my hunch. When people realise in six months' time that their vehicle is not, in fact, um, in breach of the regulations and they've not been hit with a fine of, you know, 50 grand over the course of a year and all the Tory scare stories haven't, in fact, um, penalised the vast majority of people, I think this story will die down. What do you think? I've been hit with Ulez several times. Have you? As a driver of a 1991 Mercedes. Um, yeah, I'm certainly not within the rules. And every time I go to London with a car, I get hit by it. Um, so, yeah. How much do you have to pay? 12, oh, I think it was 12.50 yeah, 12, something like that. Um, and the congestion charge at the same time sometimes. So it's, it's an expensive day out to London. Um, yeah, it's interesting with the, with the, the Ulez thing. I think it's gone very well for Labour so far until now, until this sort of latest expansion in London. The fact that it spooked the National Labour Party and that they are now saying, oh, we need to have another look at how this is implemented, that makes me think, okay, so what will happen if Labour wins the next general election and then there's still this legal mandate from the courts that Greater Manchester has to have a some sort of charging zone um, to deal with to deal with the horrible air that we've got. Yeah. That's a legal requirement. That's not a party political thing. Mm -hmm. So you'll have a party in government who've just said, oh, we need to be a bit careful about how we implement these things. You've got a local mayor, Labour mayor, who has totally got cold feet on the idea of doing a, a charging zone, now thinks it can be a non-charging zone, which I cannot understand how that, how that would possibly work. And you, it's going to be interesting because it's going to get implemented. I've spoken to local sort of senior officials and yeah, it's going to get, we are going to get a, a clean air zone in Grace Manchester. Um, but it, I don't know how they're going to thread that particular sort of, of needle. It's, it's going to become a labor thing to decide rather than a, a ding dong between the national Tories and local labor. We yeah. are going to get some sort of charging zone. Yeah. And I think labor politicians and labor supporting people on social media will continue to point out that this, not only the ULAS, but, um, the, uh, clean air zones is a conservative policy that's being implemented and, and enforced through the courts. I think the very hard-working um, words that you, in that sentence, Yoshi, if I may say, are some sort of mm. charging zone. I can't imagine for the life of me something that covers the whole of Greater Manchester. That's where the rethinkings had to be done. And we have, of course, as we talked to Andy about when he came on the podcast, these totems all around Greater Manchester, which sort of point to the folly of trying to implement a a Greater Manchester-wide charging zone uh, and it won't pinch be, points all around all around the conurbation. And it won't be for regular cars, right? It'll be for commercial vehicles, yeah. buses, taxis, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a I think it was a relatively modest thing that they were going to introduce here. It wasn't going to be for regular cars. It wouldn't have caught my old my old banger in, in, 
and it's net. But it's right across the conurbation was the issue. Yeah, 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 I think it was. I think you could you could have one in places where levels of nitrous oxide, like, I don't know, Bury New Road or certain parts yeah. of Salford and Manchester City Centre might get. Um, might 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 get a clean air, and it might be interesting to see whether there's any electoral impact for Burnham when he's trying to be re-elected next year, or for you know local Labour candidates in in some of these kind of Bury, Bolton, etc. Whether this becomes an issue for them at the next election. Good, thank you very much for that. And on that note, let's go to a quick break. <laughs> I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community and the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. Welcome back to Northern Spin. Last week, The Mill received investment of £350,000 from some very high-profile investors, including Sir Mark Thompson, the former Director General of the BBC, Chief Executive Channel 4, and the new Chief Executive of CNN. Why is this such a game-changer? We have in the studio with us, as our special guest, Yoshi Herman from The Mill, the founder. Well, well done on doing the fundraising, Yoshi, but what are we going to see different? Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on as well. It's been really nice to be here. I think that the big thing that we can now do is move a little bit faster. So you, you've been involved right from the beginning, Mike. I mean, you've written for us. I mean, you've, you've been on our, on our podcast. You've been reading from the beginning. We started in Manchester with The Mill. Then we expanded to two more cities, Sheffield and Liverpool, with The Tribune and The Post. And that's mainly because I got a bit of money off Substack, which is the, the platform we use to publish. What this money will allow us to do is next time a journalist DMs me and says, hey, I'm a journalist in Leeds, or I'm a journalist in Newcastle, I'm a journalist in Glasgow, I'd love to do what you're doing, I will actually be able to say, yeah, we can do it. We can throw some money your way. We can, we've got a marketing budget. We can, we can pay your salary. We can get a second reporter in, all that sort of thing. Because the funny thing about the, doing this for the past few years is you quite often get journalists getting in touch from other places and saying, would you ever do this city? And generally the answer is, well, we'd love to, but we don't have the resources. So... First of all, we'll be able to go to more cities. Secondly, we'll be able to build up our central team here in Manchester a bit. So we're making a couple of senior hires. I'd be very grateful if any listeners could, you know, check out our um, our hires that we're making on our website because we're shy on the plugs. No, we've got to got to plug it, to, especially to a business audience. We've got a commercial role that we're trying to hire, helping us to build our revenues, which I'm desperate to find a good person for. We've got a senior editor hire that we're trying to make. So that kind of core team that allows us to grow and allows us to commercialize and monetize a little bit better, that is something we can also expand. So it's really, I think, about saying we've proven the model. We've been breaking even in, in Manchester, actually profitable in Manchester, breaking even in Sheffield. Slightly loss making still in Liverpool, but that's because it, it started a bit later. But they're all in this trajectory of getting to sustainability. I think if you can do that in a few cities, then you can go to other places and say, this is a genuine, sustainable model for quality local journalism, rather than a sort of flash in the pan. Yeah, I'm a... I'm a journalist. I'm a I'm a journalist to my absolute bones. Right, I absolutely am a newsman first and foremost, um, as well as being you know uh, a co-host of a hugely successful podcast that guests come on to plug their own products. Um, but my worry is this, and this is I think where we cut from the same cloth, is that 
you know, I, I come from an era where once upon a time there were journalists, you know, and what's yeah. happened now is these big publishers, uh, I, I, when I was at the Chorley Guardian, we had a circulation of 13,300. So I joined in 2006, it was 13,100. I managed to get up to 13,003. It doesn't seem like a big increase, but it was against a backdrop of drops, drops, drops. The cost of the cover price went up. So it went up from 50p to 70p while I was there. It's now about £1.20, £1.30, something like that. Um, you know, they've got fewer and fewer journalists. The size of the, the pagination of the newspaper has dropped. You know, you're seeing every time they need to save money, they cut journalists. They cut journalists. You've got whole newsrooms with literally one person in a newsroom. And then what's happening in place of quality journalism where you're holding people to account, you're putting stories on websites if only to get clickbait as well. So this becomes a race to the bottom. And I think what the mill's doing is the mill's saying, actually, people do want quality journalism. Michael mentioned to me, he said, you know, he said, you need to start listening to Tortoise Media. You know, so in the course of the summer, I've literally binged out on Tortoise Media and really niche podcasts. I listen more than I read these days because the quality of journalism is so dire. That's where the mill's coming in. And I think to get somebody of Mark Thompson standing involved is an acknowledgement that unless he does something, no one's going to hold anyone to account outside of the Westminster bubble, like you said, 450 people, you know, it's horrendous. Yeah, you've got 450 lobby journalists. I'm passionate about this. Michael's telling me to shut up. I'm <laughs> no, I wasn't saying no, you to shut up. I was going to say, let me push back okay. a little bit. But, but, right. No, but just on the lobby journalist thing, you've got 450 lobby journalists and you have got dozens, probably hundreds of communities up and down the country who don't have a newspaper anymore. Where I grew up in Sussex, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from this neck of the woods. Where I grew up from, in Sussex, there used to be two local newspapers in the local town. Then there was one. Then Reach PLC took over that one. And now you only get one page of local news and the rest of it is about a, a nearby town. And effectively, that is now a kind of fraudulent newspaper. It's, got, it's still called, called the East Grinstead Courier, but it's not anything to do with East Grinstead, which is a local town. You have got, going back to the 450 lobby journalists, 450 lobby journalists, and you have a city like Manchester where the main newspaper doesn't have a political editor. It does not have a political editor because the political editor left and went to the FT and the company did not replace her. Why? Probably to save money. You've got places across Greater Manchester that used to have their own political reporters, but now it's the local democracy reporters who've just replaced that. That was not the point of the local democracy reporting scheme when the BBC funded it. It was not supposed to replace journalists. It was supposed to be additive. In fact, these very cynical large companies like Reach PLC have cut roles in order to replace them with these, with these BBC-funded roles. I think what's happening in local journalism is a huge crisis. It's a genuine national disgrace. Big part of our information infrastructure, local news, is being torn apart by very large companies who care a lot about their bottom line and who do not care enough about the communities that they're serving. For a company like that to be so cynical as to not appoint a political editor in Manchester the second most important city in the country, possibly the most important city, to be fair, is absolutely ridiculous. And, and, and we need to have a bit of a sense of alarm about it, I think. Yeah. All I was going to push back on, Yoshi, is the idea that there is no journalism going on outside of what you're doing and what certain journalists do um, within the lobby. I, th I think that does a great disservice to a lot of great things that are going on. And... I think, I think your, your meta-narrative at the top of it 
is very much look at us, we're doing real journalism. I think the reality as a subscriber to the mill of long term, as, as I am, is you do give due credit, you know? Yeah, Your yeah. newsletter last week bigged up, for instance, the fantastic story that Jennifer Williams did in the Financial Times yep. about Newman Sixth Form College in, in Newman School in Oldham. Yes. And, and, and what an incredible deep dive that was. I think some of the reporting that she's done around Ben Houchen and the and all that mess up in We big you up as well. Yeah, and this is my point, Yoshi, is yeah, you, you big it up on that. But I think you, you do potentially have the danger of saying, you know, we, we've kind of reinvented journalism as we know it because of the crisis that's going on with National World, with NewsQuest and Reach PLC. Let's not forget there are other newspaper groups that Chris and I have worked, uh, some of them Chris and I have worked for in, in our careers that are asleep at the wheel, that are not providing the public service that we would expect as citizens. And I think a lot of that has been outsourced, unfortunately, to the information and quality vacuum that is local mm. Facebook groups. I mean, I don't know if you ever go on a local Facebook group, but my God, I've, I've been told to stay away because it just in, in, infuriates me. But quite to the contrary, not only do I not claim to have reinvented local journalism or, or to say, not only do I not claim that we're the only ones doing it, in every single newsletter we publish, hundreds of newsletters, we always link to good journalism in the MEN, good journalism in the Liverpool Echo, good journalism in the Bolton News, good journalism in the Business Desk, good journalism in the FT. We are constantly linking. I reckon we must have sent out more than a couple of thousand links to good quality journalism happening in these companies that we often criticize. Do they ever do the same back to us? No, I don't think I've ever had a link back from the MEN. So clearly, we are very appreciative of the journalism that is there, but we're also trying to make the point that local readers should not have to wade through dozens of irrelevant articles about celebrities, should not have to close 10 different pop-up ads in order to get local information. That is, that is just, I think that's incontrovertible. And I think that um, while we give credit to, to what's happening locally, we have to have a sense of alarm about how bad things have got in terms of these large publishers who are letting go journalists on a regular basis. There have been two rounds of redundancies at Reach PLC this year, and they are trying to get the remaining journalists to do lots of SEO content, search content, et cetera, et cetera. The number of journalists in this country at a local level who are given the time to do actual reporting is lower and lower and lower every year. And I think that's a really big problem. Chris, are you hearing the same thing yeah. from your contacts? <clears throat> yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to come back on that because um, what you're talking about, sadly, is nothing new. You know, I remember working at Northcliffe and uh, owned by the Daily Mail group, actually, on a regional level. And they introduced a policy called Aim Higher. And it was, uh, it was actually nicknamed by the staff Aim and Fire because that's what they were talking about. And the metric they use to compare staff is, right, how many stories has John written and how many stories has Chris written? Mm. Okay, well, John's written 10 and Chris only done one. Hang on a minute. What they don't look at is nine of those stories from John were press releases. The story from Chris was a, you know, three-week investigation that actually moved the dial. So, so the metrics they compare it to are completely wrong. Um, you, you mentioned about the MEN not having a political reporter. The problem... Political was editor. Be, yeah, political editor. The problem is going to be that following Jen Williams is always going to be difficult, but that role would be probably, I'm guessing, a £50,000 role. You look at, like, the Liverpool Echo, they've got Liam Thorpe, who is a well-respected journalist, you know, politically, um, yeah, and, and, and I agree with you. I agree that if you're going to invest in something like that, you've got to have somebody of stature or invest in them. You look at a guy called Rob Parsons. So Rob Parsons does a podcast 
Northern Agenda. Well respected, covers the whole of the North. You, you talk about the fact that, you know, newspapers, they've moved out of areas. Then they have one day a week in a, in, in, in a chemist or the library and they say, we've got a presence in Chorley. They haven't. Rob Parsons covers the whole of the North on his Todd. You know, and without Rob, stuff would just would just disappear. But there's only so much you can do as, as someone who writes one newsletter about the whole North. Tell you what happens when cities don't have proper politics coverage. Stuff like what happened in Liverpool, right? A huge corruption scandal that involved arrests being made by the police in the council headquarters. That happened, and it had not been picked out by the Liverpool Echo for years. There'd been the odd story about this or that, but it took the police and it took a, a government inspector to come in to work out that there were these, there was, there was you know, alleged corruption. There was stuff about money stick being... the word alleged in for us. Yeah, let's yeah, stick it. Yeah, money be. I mean, you know, we're, we're waiting to see who gets charged, et cetera, et cetera. There have been lots of arrests. There was money being spent on projects that should never have been spent. Massive waste. And that was with a, a newspaper that did have a political answer. The big thing that I think you said just now that really resonates with me is the press release thing. Yeah. Go on your local newspaper website, whoever, wherever you are, listeners, across the north, go on your local newspaper website and click on 10 stories and tell me how many of them are based either on a press release or one thing that someone said on social media. If that number is, is a significant number out of, out of 10, that is, that is telling you something about the degradation of local news. And when you see a political editor for a city writing up press releases from the local, you know, combined authority or from the, from the local council leader, you have, you have completely devalued that role. So it's not just about having a political editor or not, it's also giving people the time to do the work. I, make, I need to make one serious point before we talk rugby league, which is the Liverpool Echo, Liam Thorpe, did the investigation into councillors, Labour councillors, who were basically getting parking fines and, uh, and, and actually getting them overwritten. And there was this huge, outrageous scandal now, that was only brought to light by Liam Thorpe. And, and the concern is how many other stories aren't coming to light because there's no, there's no checks and balances in place. And that's what happens when you haven't got a robust regional journalism. Um, well, the massive corruption scandal in Liverpool wasn't brought to light. It wasn't brought to light. I mean, we've got to ask ourselves, how have we got to a place where one of the biggest cities in the country doesn't have the journalistic infrastructure to expose an enormous local government scandal so severe that the government sent in commissioners to take over the council? Mm, it's an interesting subject. It's, uh, I don't know how we're going to link this sort of segue from, uh, from that to uh, Salford Red Devils. I'll tell you how we'll do it, Chris. So we were talking about the press release and the single, new, single news piece. Um, I, I decided on the business desk last week to, to try to do a little bit more, maybe, maybe adopt the methodology that the mill would do to look at what, ha what has been going on with Salford Rugby League, the Red Devils. You know, they were six in the table uh, before the weekend. They've got a chance to get into the playoffs. For, you know, and, and, but broader than that, there's a whole issue around with the stadium. So I thought I'd just kind of reverse back and look at it rather than just report on... Um, on a couple of comments by Conservative councillor Robin Garrido, who's called in uh, a plan by Socialist Mayor of Salford, um, Paul Dennett, to effectively take control of the stadium. And, and I just wanted to provide a bit of context. I mean, that's what old people like me can do. We've been around a long time to just try and look at the, the history of a story and the context of it. You know, I'm not going to win any Pulitzer Prizes for that story. 
But I just tried to, you know, I spoke to the MD of Salford Reds Rugby League. I spoke to Councillor Garrido. Um, I got some great comments that um, that Paul Dennett had already given to I Love Manchester, which is a, you know, they, they make a decent stab at doing a certain type of journalism as well. And and I and I guess that's 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 the sort of inspiration and the and and the. the the type of journalism I'd, I'd like to do a lot more of, but we don't always have time because we've got a fairly hungry beast to feed every day with our, you know, 12 to 16 stories on a newsletter. That's that's a um, really interesting point. I was just going to mention a quick update in terms of the labour reshuffle. Um, but but there's so much more we could do if you had more time, but the world over could talk about the same issue. Um, I think what, what the uh, Salford Reds are talking about is really interesting because there's a guy that you'll know him, Oliver Randall, became a director of the holding company that sits behind it. Um, yeah, I spoke to him as well. Yeah, you know, but, but, but they are increasingly turning to us on LinkedIn to try and raise the profile. Yeah. And, and me and you are both 50-year-old white guys who, who the reason we launched Northern Spin, which is a year old, is because we don't want to sit on our hands and just cry from the sidelines and complain. We want to do something to try and move the dial for the benefit of the North. Um, we called Angela Rayner. We said what was going to happen. And a quick update is that Lisa and Andy has been replaced by, uh, by Angela Rayner. She's been appointed uh, Shadow Leveling Up Secretary as well as a Shadow Deputy Prime Minister as well. Uh, Jim McMahon announced he's stepping down as Shadow Environment Secretary and he's been thanked by uh, Sir Keir Starmer. It's worth making a point, actually, that he said, Jim McMahon said, one of the reasons he's standing down for is because... Uh, he, for the benefit of health and his family after coming back from a serious illness. Earlier this year, he spoke about receiving hospital care for two weeks after an infection. And just to be to put the other side forward, actually, Jim McMahon spoke at a couple of panels that I hosted. He is a really good older MP, you know, in terms of, I think that's where his bread and butter is. I don't think he maybe had the profile or the charisma or the personality to be a really top front bench, uh, top bench shadow minister. Uh, but that's the breaking news. Any thoughts on that about Angela Rayner? Yeah, no, I think that's that's very much consolidated Angela Rayner's power at the heart of the Labour Party. I think it's an agenda that makes a lot of sense. It's where she's going to have a lot of cut through, um, despite the Tory attempts to, you know, present her as the fancy shoe-wearing vape, vaping grandma from Stockport. I think, actually, the sort of people who Keir Starmer needs to vote Labour will do so, and she speaks to that agenda. Leveling up. I think it's a shame for Lisa and Andy. I think she's an important thinker in that world, and hopefully she's got a good place within the Labour hierarchy. Maybe I mean, environment section. I don't know. It's unfolding as we speak. We'll probably we'll probably find out. Actually, um, you just mentioned uh, rugby league. We're going to keep on the sporting theme. I want to talk about cricket. So uh, at the weekend, I played cricket once again. Didn't trouble the scores very much. But um, we spoke about a guy called Adnan Merkel, who was uh, an Afghanistan refugee who featured in Freddie Flintoff's TV programme Field of Dreams. And uh, he's done really well for himself ever you since. You played cricket with him, didn't you? Yeah, his first game in England, I, I opened the batting with him. And uh, he got 10. I think I got about I got about eight, I think. It wasn't very much. And then after that, he went and he, he played for the team that we played against. But he's playing at uh, Wigan now. He's doing quite well, actually. Uh, look, keep, keep an eye on his figures. So I played on um, Saturday and we played against a team called Whitley Woods. Whitley Woods and Clayton Woods, it's called, actually. They've amalgamated. And the opening bowler for Whitley, for Whittle, is a lad called uh, um, um, Kalila Raymond. Um, he's actually pronounced killer. So as this fast bowler's coming in, it says, come on, killer, come on. I'm like, I don't wear a helmet when I bat. So having an opening bowler who's pretty sharp, thankfully it was the slowest wicket I've ever played on in my life. Um, but anyway, this lad, killer, that's killer Raymond. I spoke to him afterwards and um, it's about humanising, you know, immigration. 
So he is from Afghanistan. He said, and it, one of his teammates, um, he speaks pidgin English, helped to uh, sort of translate what he said. He says he left, yeah. he, left Af- um, he left Afghanistan. It was a difficult situation for him. It took him two years to get to France. Um, he said every time a truck came down the road, he had to hide behind a tree. He didn't want to get arrested. You know, so he made this hazardous crossing to France. He got to England on his 21st attempt to get to England. He got to England on the back of a, of a, of a bus, on the back of a lorry. Didn't want to go across on a small boat's crossing. He finally got to England, arrived in Preston. His immigration process is going through. He's been given a five-year stay of execution. Um, he got talking to a guy who mentioned cricket. Earlier this year, he took 10 wickets in a match, which is virtually unheard of against Darwin. And I just thought to myself, he's 19 now, and he's had a tough old time. And yet when you see these stories about you know, small boats crossing, you must remember the people that sit behind the yeah, stories. Lovely. And it just really struck me that. Yeah, good for you, Chris. That's a, that's a real humanising mm. of, a, of, a, of a story like that. I, that really struck me when I saw the Freddie Flintoff stuff and uh, with, uh, with Adnan as well. Um, so what else have we been up to in the summer? This is the bit where we do a little bit of culture, where I try to uh, educate Chris about some great bit, good bits of northern culture. Did you go and see Noel Gallagher at Withenshaw Park with Andy Burnham? I didn't get an invite, actually. Had no, I have done, I probably would have been there. But um, no. Did you go to Kendall Calling and see Blossoms? Well, you know I didn't. No, so you're okay. asking me. Clearly, you did. Did you go to the, No, I didn't, actually. Did you go to the Edinburgh Festival? Um, no, I didn't, actually. I was single-handedly trying to keep Business Clown going. Um, you know, while you were jolly, you were jolly. Now, I, um, I, I, did, um, I did quite a few things, but I didn't do any headline bands like that. But what about yourself? I mean, you, you know, me and you are the uh, two token southerners here. You know, Michael's the token northerner. Um, you're from Sussex, I'm from Kent originally. We're both adopted Northerners. What did you do this summer, Yoshi? Get me out of this uh, tirade. What Northern culture do I take in over the summer? To be honest, this summer has been very um, based in my garden because I've just oh, bought a house. Lovely. I'm now a, a Lady Barn resident, so I've been, I've been doing a lot of stuff at home, haven't been out much, uh, playing a lot of tennis and, uh, and sitting in my house. Um, but That's very Sussex, I have to say. Yeah, it's very Sussex. <laughs> did you go to anything at the Manchester International Festival? I did, yeah, I did. What and did you think of it this year? Look, um, pe- people probably know what I think of it if they've read our, our big mill long read about, about MIF. I, um, I went to the new venue, the US Studios, which is extremely big, but to be honest, that's the only thing I could really say about it. It's very large. I mean, you could be inside an Amazon warehouse um, or you could be inside a massive cultural venue. Um, I thought the um, the balloons exhibition was decent, um, but not amazing. I think the way that they have communicated what it's supposed to be all about, the new venue, is extremely poor. I mean, they, they have really not come up with a way of talking about it that sounds compelling or interesting. Oh, it's going to be a bit of this, it's going to be a bit of that. Is it going to be for club nights? Oh, yeah, maybe a little bit. I would like to know whether the people behind it actually have a plan um, for, for doing it. So um, yeah, that was a, that was a little bit of northern culture I took in. Obviously, I, I go to the football quite a lot, but um, I certainly was not with you and Andy Burnham. Um, I didn't go to any part. of those, by the way. Oh, you didn't. I, I was just throwing them in as a bit of shade. For this. <laughs> uh, we, we, this is how we roll, unfortunately. I tell you one thing. I do want to mention. It's not in the script or anything, Chris. So apologies, mm. but um, the late great Tony Wilson once explained original modern to me in a way that Peter Saville, spending two hours trying to do so, singularly failed. And it was basically this, that basically when Manchester is original, it's great. And when it does something modern, it's great. And when it does something that is unoriginal, it's rubbish. And that is the essence of the whole original modern brand and why Manchester shouldn't be copycat in other other cities around the world. 
So underneath the Mancunian Way, right next to Manchester Metropolitan University, where I used to work, we used to have a really pleasant coffee once a week with our team where we used to talk about the week ahead in this thing called Hatch. It was operated by Bruntwood and it was basically a load of shipping containers with like pop-up shops and cafes in and stuff like that. And it has been the, um, the you know, the, the seed for which lots of businesses have grown from. Bruntwood have now sold it. This has been a process that's been going on for a couple of years, but they've sold it to a much more established northeast operator called Stack, who are going to be running it. Because I think it's an admission that, yeah, it was a copy. It's not what Bruntwood do. You know, Bruntwood are a very successful um, science and technology landlord, um, but they kind of dip their toe in the water of doing this, and and, it, and it's not what they're about, and the, and they've moved it on. I think some of the press coverage over the weekend on this in some of the what's left of our local media uh, look, look, looked into this and and didn't quite didn't quite grasp what's going on. It's that it's going to be closing, and that Sasha Lord waded in and says it's disgraceful, and that they can all get jobs at the warehouse project. I think there's. It's another good example of, of how local journalism covers stories and context, but it's also an example, Hatch, about something that actually, um, it wasn't a, exactly an original idea in the, fir- in the first place. There's another thing in London, isn't there, called Box Parks. Mm. They've popped up all over London. So, mm. uh, yeah, one to watch there, I think. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's an interesting point. I think the problem is, is that like, people will throw brickbacks. I mean, Bruntwood, and they give uh, percentages of their profits to charity... They're fundamentally a business who make business decisions, and if the numbers aren't stacking up, you know, because it's not their knitting, they, you know, they'll 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 move it on a bit. I, I think I think you're right though. I mean, I've not been into Manchester for a few weeks, and I came into Manchester today to, to walk across town. And there's it, another tower block gone up. Yeah, and <laughs> I see all this development. And when I look at Manchester, I look up now. I look up, and I don't look. I don't look down. I don't look to see what's, you know. That 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 earthy independent street. No, don't get me wrong. I wasn't walking through Ancoats, you know. You know, I would have seen more of that if I'd been there. But yeah, you're right. It's just there's another tower block going up, and there was a planning application on Friday. The council have approved four thousand eight hundred new homes. They'll all be flats, almost certainly. And then we talk about the issue over transport, and then we talk about the issue over pollution and air quality, and this, that, and the other. And you sort of see where it's going. And I hope we don't live in a. I don't. You know, Mikey's don't come here in 20, 30, 40 years and all they see is high-rises because Manchester will have lost its soul if that happens. Well, yeah, some interesting thro- thoughts thrown in. Um, I wanted to mention very, very briefly, just before we end, uh, I did go to the Edinburgh Festival. I saw uh, Mancunian comic Josh Jones do a, a sell-out show during the Fringe. They're very, very enjoyable, not least for the fact that one of my good friends, Sam Jones, is his older brother and half of the material is about Sam. Um but I just enjoyed the whole buzz of Edinburgh and, and and it kind of put into context for me the aspirations of the Manchester International Festival and all the other sort of festivals that we've got in Manchester. That Edinburgh actually is it's different gravy. It's a completely different level. And that's, I think, what uh, a city like this has to be shooting for. In fact, any other city that wants to do a festival. Edinburgh was everything I hoped it would be and more. Good. Right. That's been Northern Spin. You've enjoyed being on the uh, show with us, Yoshi? I've loved it, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a cut and thrust. <laughs> Has it been like a live highlight? Uh, it's, yeah, t- top, 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 top few live highlights, yeah. Well, that's it anyway for episode one of season five of Northern Spin. If you want to sponsor the podcast, get in touch. We're on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to press the subscribe button, whether you get us on Spotify, Amazon, Google, or whatever. Follow us on Twitter at Northern 
underscore spin one or watch us on YouTube. Thank you to What Media and our sponsors, FI Real Estate Management, and to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name, as ever, is Michael Taylor. And my name, as ever, is Chris McGuire.